Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy and Jeff Copsetta. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. As always, we are film, filming. I wish we were filming. We are recording live. I haven't even started drinking my bourbon yet. Uh, we're recording or digitized live here in the At Computer Studio in Cape Coral, Florida. But as always, joining us from Texas... Our friend Jeff Cop said, "Jeff, how are you, sir?" Good, sir. How are you? Good. You know, at some point, I need to write down the name of the town that way. Say, joining us from Texas is our friend Jeff Cop said, "But you know, it's just things are just so so darn crazy." But how is your Thanksgiving going this year, sir? You know, I mean, every every year for me is it's the best year. So it was the best Thanksgiving. I mean, it was small, but it was personal, and it was good, man. I mean, you know, it's it's um. You don't take anything for granted anymore. Isn't that the so, truth? That's you know that's kind yeah. of the one. If there's a silver lining or a good thing, quote unquote, to come from COVID, at least early on. I don't know. Maybe now we're all jaded again, but at least early on, we all kind of sat back. Back when we didn't know exactly where this pandemic was going to take us, how severe it was, if we were going to see the casualty numbers that they originally predicted, and we all kind of paused our lives and looked around. And said, holy crap. And I think a lot of us, at least for a period of time, were a little more grateful for every day we had in our family and, and the opportunities we had. But kind of like with anything else, as time goes by, we start to fall back in our old ruts and our old system again. And I think a lot of those thankfulness may have fallen to the wayside. Yeah, maybe so. But we'll enjoy it while it lasts. Let me ask you a question. Um I usually drink a beer during these things, but I'm kind of trying to watch my empty calories, and so I switched over to bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that you uh, enjoy a cigar and a drink from time to time. What is your liqueur of choice? Actually, I'm a wine guy. I got a glass right now. I, uh, I, I mean, I'll have a good glass of bourbon every now and then. Um, you know, there's a there's a distillery right down the road here that's. Uh, uh, it was actually the first distillery in Texas, um, and it's just really grown in proportion. And of course, we're right in the heart of wine country. You know, we've talked about that before. But uh, but uh, Garrison Brothers is a is a local distillery here, and they do very well and they make excellent bourbon. But no, I'm typically I'm typically a wine guy, man. I'm I'm mostly Portuguese, so that's just that's in my blood, I guess. You know, I've been drinking the Maker's Mark for years now. Um, not that I'm a bourbon connoisseur. I did discover um, that a Jim Beam is more of a um, a mixing bourbon, not so much of a sipping bourbon, if you know what I mean. It just kind of right. it doesn't have that taste to it. It's just not, it's, let's be honest, it's not a good straight bourbon. No, no, no hacks towards you Jim Beam fans. But um, I recently discovered this stuff called Larceny. It's a small batch, 92 proof, weeded bourbon bourbon, which, yes, I know it sounds redundant, but that's actually what they call it. It's a weeded bourbon bourbon. And huh. um, I've been enjoying it. It's it's pretty darn good. And I my dad brought over some Crown Royal yesterday, but it's like, well, what's the, what's the point? I got, I got this going on. So uh, <laughs> it's Thanksgiving time, and we had a small little get-together here yesterday. We had about eight people, maybe seven. But I was... Um, you know, we've all seen, being World War II aficionados, we've all seen the World War II photos of the guys in the front lines and the foxholes, you know, eating a turkey leg and having their mess kits out with the uh, all the accoutrements. But um, I got to looking around today, I was like, what do we not know about Thanksgiving and World War II? 
Did you know that prior to us getting involved in the war, right on the heels of the Great Depression, Roosevelt toyed around and actually changed the date of Thanksgiving for three years? Really? Yes. In the summer of 1939, concerned retailers approached President Franklin Roosevelt that the... This is poorly written, so I'm just reading verbatim. Uh, Approached President Franklin Roosevelt, period. The Christmas shopping season had uh, never started before Thanksgiving, but in 1939, Thanksgiving, which had been celebrated on the last Thursday of November since 1863, would land on November 30th, which would curtail revenue. In August of 1939, Roosevelt issued a presidential proclamation changing Thanksgiving to the third Thursday of November. It was a hugely unpopular decision. While 32 states adopted it, adopted the earlier date, 16 refused. In 1939, 40, and 41, two dates were celebrated, depending on the state. The later original date was sometimes nicknamed the Republican Thanksgiving, and the new early date, the Democrat Thanksgiving, or the Franksgiving, I guess because of Franklin. By 1941, Roosevelt admitted the earlier date had absolutely no effect on retail sales figures, and so on October 6, 1941, the House of Representatives voted to move Thanksgiving back to the last Thursday of November. Uh, the, Sen- the Senate amended the bill on December 9, 1941, despite the previous day's declaration of war on Japan. Now imagine that, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> it's December 9, 1941. Yesterday, he just gave the speech about, you know, being attacked the day that would go down in infamy, and we just you know, declared war in Japan. But the very next day, let's get back to the serious task that we've all been waiting for on bated breath, and that is what day will we celebrate Thanksgiving on? Um, yeah, so the, so despite that the previous day they declared war in Japan to make the holiday fall on the fourth Thursday to accommodate uh, four or five, um, to accommodate the date. Uh, the president signed the legislation on December 26, 1941, now, here's an interesting thing. I'm not going to read all this verbatim, but I found an interesting chart on here. And it's talking about Macy's Day Parade. Rubber was one of the most critical wartime shortages since 92% of American supply came from Japan, occupied land. I'm sorry, Japanese occupied land, which I never knew that before. I didn't know that at the time Japan like held 92% of the properties that grew rubber trees. Were you aware of that? That's essentially, yeah, it's essentially the French Indochina uh, peninsula or what became vietnam was in uh, the philippines i think that's where most of the rubber for the world comes from is, is those two locations and so on november 13 yeah. 1942 macy's department store ceremoniously handed over their famous giant rubber balloons used in the annual parades including superman who had only made his debut in 1939 the balloons were shredded for scrap rubber but here's the interesting thing they have a little cute little chart here a gas mask required 1.1 pounds of rubber not too bad, because most of that's canister. A life raft required 17 to 100 pounds of rubber. I guess it depends on the type of rubber and the thickness. The scout car required, I guess, for um, tires and, uh, I don't know, maybe hoses and things like that. 300, yeah, hoses, yeah. yeah, 306 pounds of rubber. And a heavy bomber required 1,825 pounds of rubber. And so, Jeez. I mean, it, it just goes to show you, we are all kind of complaining about now. Um, you know, about some certain states can only have, you know, so many people over. But, you know, looking over to my left here, my cabinet, I still have, which I'm super proud of, I have the remnants of a wartime ration stamp book. Mm. 
And all these Thanksgiving, all of the Thanksgiving Day ingredients were being rationed. And so if you, a lot of the, the housewives having foresight, they would start a few months out to ration their rations so that they would have extra ration stamps available to them so that they can go out and get the things they needed in order to procure their Thanksgiving dinner. And so imagine trying to put together a Thanksgiving dinner on for ration stamps. Gosh, I know. Just a different time, man. I, you really, you got, you got me hung up when, I mean, I couldn't even imagine if this was today. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine the press conference in December, you know, or after, after the attack on Pearl, <laughs> and we know we're at war in Germany and Italy declared war on us a few days later. You know there would be somebody in that room say, oh, Mr. President, wait, wait. now, what about the Thanksgiving thing again? Because you still haven't let us know. Like, you know, that would be today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we're at war, right? Yeah, yeah, we get, we get we're at war, but we need to finalize this Thanksgiving. Thing. Yeah, because, <laughs> you know, you know like, there would be these editorialized things on Twitter, and there would be these YouTube videos from Walmart and all them. We don't know which day. If we don't know when to th- celebrate Thanksgiving, how could we possibly know when to have Black Friday? We can't have two Black oh, Friday. strike. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know, honestly, I did not know Thanksgiving dated back that far, I'll be um, honest. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I, I was trying to find more information on this, and what I discovered was that basically two different websites may, uh, utilized a lot of the same material. Uh, and I found, hold on, um, changes, ration shortages. I actually found a, one article that explained all the different dates, um, how it actually started. Um because even back, Lincoln had it. Lincoln had it on a completely different day. So I mean, it went way back. Huh. Um, I don't think I saved that page. I'd have to. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy. Thanksgiving during World War Two. Oh my god! I love how my phone searches synchronized with my computer searches. <laughs> do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. That's the same page. But yeah. Um, basically the the date had been changed like i think throughout history like three to four different times because i know lincoln had it on a certain date and then it was moved and then it was moved again i want to say maybe um abraham lincoln was not the first president to urge the americans to celebrate thanksgiving washington john adams john madison all issued proclamation regarding the holiday Gimbel's department store in Philadelphia was the first major store to sell a host a Thanksgiving Day parade. Yeah, but um, I can't find that the other article. But it's just, and the amount of effort I was also reading, um, they would during this time of year, because obviously we had three of them, they would f- they would fill an entire Liberty ship with nothing but Thanksgiving accoutrements: turkeys, cranberry sauce, the all the ingredients for the mashed potatoes, everything. So. It was vital, you know, all the discomforts in wartime, you know, the two times a year, the, well, the Marine Corps as well, but the Army and the Marine Corps, the Allies themselves went whole hog, pardon the pun, on trying to make sure that the uh, guys on the front had something to boost their morale. Apparently it was Thanksgiving and obviously Christmas, but yeah, they they went all out as far as um, getting stuff over there. Yeah, and you, you just mentioned something really interesting that puts this whole war in perspective. I mean, you think about what World War II is to, to everybody, to mm-hmm. every historian, to, 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 to the, the novice historian, to, to us. I mean, look, we're, we have podcasts about this war. Yep. We were only involved for three Thanksgivings. Mm-hmm. That really blows my mind what, how, how much the world changed how much 
this country came together. I mean, I was just talking about it earlier today that, you know, we had uh, whatever it was, seven or eight aircraft carriers total to be able to be deployed all around planet Earth in 1941, only four in the Pacific. Yeah. And we estimated we built about 150, 151 during the war. Like, let that sink in. <laughs> 150 some aircraft carriers were manufactured in a period of time that took less than four Thanksgivings. And you kind of mentioned it That's earlier. You know, we're talking about how the day after we declared war, now we're worried about Thanksgiving. Imagine if you would, not that we're getting into an old episode of The Twilight Zone. But imagine if you would, if for some reason we got ourselves into another large-scale debacle where we needed to rely on what American industries we have left manufacturing over here. Obviously, the steel industry is gone, so we won't be uh, manufacturing too many tanks over here. But let's just say for a second, could you imagine trying to go to the Apples, the Microsofts, the uh, Teslas of the world and say, hey, shut down your production, retool and start building these products of a different has nothing to do with what you do and is not going to generate you any revenue whatsoever. Well, with the exception of government contracts, do you think mm. they would happily do that in this day and age? Or do you think there'd be a huge, you know, oh, you're overstepping your bounds as the United States government? Honestly, I think the way we would end up fighting the next war on a grander scale would prevent that from even being an option. Mm-hmm. There would be no, you know, it would be a war fought not out of an attrition of materials like that, but of a technological war that would bring a swift devastation. Yeah. Um, There's, with, you know, with the stuff that mass production wouldn't even be a factor. And, yeah. you know, and that's just my personal opinion. And what that really does is, you know, say Japan had gotten a hold of the technology that we use for the atomic bombs. Yeah, they couldn't. They couldn't keep up. They couldn't feed their troops. They couldn't keep up with the demands of aircraft or vehicles. You know, they couldn't mass produce like we did. But had they had the technology that we had to create atomic warfare, now it's it's even Stephen. And yeah. that's kind of you know that should make that should make people pause today. Uh, the, the the little guy you picked on on the playground may have a secret weapon. And they don't necessarily have to be able to produce like like we had to in World War Two, to I mean and, and think of, I mean look at our look at our most recent war, look how they brought us down on their level, um, you know not fighting us at night so much or not fighting us in the air they they took us down they put us in our, in their cities on their stomping ground and they made us fight by their rules mm-hmm. and our technology you know, throw it out the window yeah um, so yeah it's an interesting outlook but yeah it's back to your point. No, absolutely not. I, I don't. I don't foresee company. I mean, we don't take anything serious enough <laughs> for long enough to appreciate, you know, that that this country, how detrimental it possibly could have been. I mean, look at how many people kind of totally forgot about what happened on September 11th. It well, really didn't take too long for that not to be front page news anymore. And then, I mean, I know I don't just. I don't have to remind you or our audience, but the general everyday counterpart walking down the street, how many of us forgot that we're still at a war right now? It's been going on since 9-11. So, I mean, there sure. you go. You know, and that's, that's not a modern thing. I mean, how many yeah. people were getting sick and tired of the air war in Europe? Yeah. You know, like, okay. You know, we're, you know, you're losing thousands of guys sometimes a week. All right. 
we got to figure something else out. And, you know, especially the 8th Air Force, you know, was they were under the gun. Like, okay, we got to figure this out. And same thing over in Japan. LeMay had to, like, okay, we need something else to break this kind of, you know, very costly stalemate. Because, yeah, the American public, we are fickle. It doesn't take us long to go, okay, that's boring, tired of that. Okay, what's next? What's the newest, best thing? You know, that's not that's not so much a contemporary outlook for America. I think it's always been like that. It's part of our spirit. You know? I found that information. Um, many people believe Abraham Lincoln made the day official in 1863, but he did not. In 1939, the last uh, Thursday happened to be also the last day of the month. And retailers were worried, blah, blah, blah. Nope, that wasn't the information I was looking for. But here's the other thing. I was wrong. I said one liberty ship. No. Throughout the U.S. involvement overseas, military officials did their best to provide traditional hot holiday meals for soldiers overseas. In 1943, the American people sent two liberty ships fully stocked with Thanksgiving supplies for their soldiers. Everything was included. Turkeys, trimming, cranberry sauce, and even various pies. All sent throughout uh, the European and Pacific theater. So that would make sense. One liberty ship went to Europe, the other one went to, uh, the, to the Pacific. All the way to the front lines, those lucky enough to be stationed aboard Navy vessels received excellent food all the time. But Thanksgiving was particularly scrumptious for the servicemen. Despite the good intentions of the higher ranks, every man missed their families, especially during the holidays. But those soldiers had each other through the hardest of times of their lives. However, no Thanksgiving be, could be quite compared to the ones held at home. Some men observed that the feeling for Thanksgivings um, was nothing like they could ever at home. Yeah. There's no place like home. Yeah. Ain't that the truth? Um, yeah. Just to wrap up the Thanksgiving thing, and then we'll get into uh, the Pacific and uh, some uh, anniversaries. Here is a poem that a, um unidentified uh, soldier wrote during Thanksgiving. I can see everyone eating their dinner deluxe, whether it's chicken, turkey, or even ducks. The fellows over here won't whimper or moan. They'll look to the next one and hope to be home. Truly and honestly, from a way down deep, they want you to be happy and enjoy your feast. These holidays are reminders by one and all. Those happy days we can always recall. The ones in the future will be happier, I know, when we can all come back from defeating the foe. And so, I mean, it was just, I don't know, I just couldn't. I could, you know, as bad as the... (laughs) The Pacific was hot, and obviously the Battle of Attrition was insane. But above that poem is a you know, is a picture we've all seen of the guy from Fifth Armor laying under his shelter half, and a snowy foxhole just biting into a turkey leg. And it's just, uh, I just couldn't even imagine spending a Thanksgiving like that, or two or three, depending on how long you were over there. Yeah. And you were that. That's an awesome. Oh man, you need to put that on our Facebook page. No, that is really cool. I'll I'll post that tonight. And yeah, you were kind of saying earlier that you never really think about it. Three Thanksgivings. Well, that's if you're an old salt in the Marine Corps. I mean, the boys over in Europe, they're lucky they spent one and a half. You know, one. And that's I don't know. To me, that's the craziest thing about the guys in the Army and the Marine Corps. And the CBs, anyone who served in a Pacific Theater operations, if you were one of the guys who, for whatever reason, survived or didn't get enough points or 
your position required you to be there from August 7th all the way up until the end of 40 and 45. That is just, that's a long run, man. Yeah. Yeah. Very few, very few did that for sure. And so, uh, you had a topic you wanted to get into a little bit tonight before we get to the uh, interview that we have with, uh, Kevin. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, try to try to time when we, uh, you know, when you post these episodes around what was kind of going on and, in World War II history, you know, so people can kind of appreciate anniversaries. I think it's important, you know, it's, um, it, it's, it's important to commemorate certain things and, it's, you know, and it's always kind of, to me, I kind of like to think about anniversaries of things that, you know, that what time of year, the season, you know, try to put yourself in that perspective. And um, I don't exactly know what day of the month, and I'm sure you can find it, what day uh, Thanksgiving ended up in 1943, um, but I'm pretty sure it was not before uh, the 20th of November 1943, when, of course, the uh, Second Marine Division went in to that goofy-looking little island of pronounced Batio or Batio or Tarawa, even though it's not such a thing as Tarawa, you know, the island, that's the name of the atoll, whatever it was called. It really goes down in history uh, as one of the most pivotal, not just a pivotal battle in the Pacific during World War II, but for the entire Marine Corps. What day did really, they land? Uh, what's that? What day did they land? Uh, the 20th of November. Okay. Um, November 1943, Thanksgiving fell on the 25th. So, I mean, it was... <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, so um, it was on everybody's mind before they even made the landing. Had to be. You're, you're five days out from Thanksgiving. and So, yeah, that, that's perfect. So, there you go. They, they go in on the 20th. Not knowing what's going to happen, this is the first time that the Marines really encountered a hot landing, a hot beach, you know, and it's just the, the, the timing of the neap tide, you know, the super low tide of the year, the lowest tide of the year, actually, on the day that they landed. Um, you know, LCVPs are getting hung up on coral reefs, hundreds, sometimes a thousand yards from the actual shoreline and being dumped off in the water, you know, wading in if the water was not already over their head. Um, you know, only about 75 of these new Amtraks are available, uh, to, to actually get these guys to the beach. And so putting ourselves back in time. Okay. Yeah. What are these guys thinking about? I bet you they're like, man, I wonder what mom's cooking for Thanksgiving next week. You know, <laughs> um, that's something that you, people typically probably don't think about. So, you know, we've all heard the story, 76 hours of, of, of hell. And, you know, they, basically called the Allen secure on 1300 at on the, on the 23rd of November. So about three and a half days of fighting, uh, but very hard fighting on, you know, this nothing, nothing Island, but it was essentially an unsinkable aircraft carrier and it had a, uh, had a runway on it and it was a good stepping stone for us. And before the Island was even secure, I think a Hellcat had landed on it <laughs> before the, you know, the mop up was completely done, but so yeah, think about that. And 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 from a, a personal standpoint, I remember being overseas, just you know, you try to make a pact with with your battle buddies and the guys in your unit that you just, you know, you just don't want to get hit around Christmas. I'm, I I I want to pause you here real quick because I'm while you're saying all this very important stuff, I'm just stuck in my tracks here. I just had a a thought that never occurred to me because I've never done this math. You know, you're just saying Saturday they landed on Saturday, November twentieth. Uh-huh. We know that 
the Allies put a tremendous amount of importance, logistics, and expedition into the delivering of VE, their V-mail, right? They got the letters to the, the boys and the men as quick as they could to keep up morale. But with technology being what it was back then, I'm sure the mothers, the daughters, the girlfriends wrote letters early, perhaps weeks in advance, to try to time this out. How many of those guys landed on that beach who never came back, whose last engagement with their home, the last letter they read was a Thanksgiving letter that arrived early? Absolutely. How many of those guys who died on that beach had a Thanksgiving letter in their haversack, in their helmet liner, in that breast pocket? That's just... Mm-hmm. <sighs> I know, man. I don't even know what you do with that. <laughs> it's a whole nother perspective. It's a whole nother perspective looking at that battle and, and thinking about what you know is on those boys' minds. Yeah. I mean, it's what's on all of our minds. It's the holidays. But of course... In the, the Central Pacific, you know, there that's not November is not fall or winter, you yeah, know, in, in the Central Pacific. In the Southern Hemisphere, it's the opposite. Yeah, so it was as far as uh, I'm, I, as far as I know, it was actually pretty warm that November uh, that they landed. And um, but yeah, that's just one of those things. That's that's our job. That's that's our duty as 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 people who study history is to to get inside the 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 time what you know surround yourself with the stuff not that the stuff that comes after that we know you know that that's the unknown for the guys when november 20th was the present um so what was going on in their little world you're right you are absolutely right how many guys had a thanksgiving letter um yeah in their haversack up in their in their helmet liner like you said i mean that you are absolutely right i guarantee there was more than one yeah (laughs) i'm pretty sure five days before thanksgiving you're absolutely right so yeah, I just thought that was uh, that was worth mentioning for our listeners, and maybe hopefully we encouraged our listeners to look, you know, look a little deeper, you know, go inside these battles and 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 try to think about. Like I said, that's why I think it's important to commemorate things on their anniversaries, because then you kind of get a feel for, you know, that time of year and what's going on. You know, things haven't changed. People are Christmas shopping in late November. They always have been. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, you talked about it with, with what FDR went through. So yeah, I mean it, that's the human experience. And, and the um, thing about Christmas, at least in the European theater, Christmas was not only was it an important holiday, but for whatever reason, the planners, the logistics officers, or maybe just the 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 brass down near the battlefields, for some reason, they always used Christmas as the movable goalpost. It was always say, hey, mm-hmm. we're going to be done by Christmas this yeah. year. And then they <laughs> moved it, and they're still there next year. And then, you know, the next year, oh, we're going to be done by Christmas this year. And and so it, Christmas was always hard to even fathom, too, one, because of the weather, but two, the fact that they were always promised, oh, we'll be done before Christmas, and wasn't the case. Yeah. And as, yeah, and that goes back to what I was saying before, is, you know, you just, you don't, you know, holidays are sometimes hard for people who've lost family members and everything, you know, it's 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 a time of reflection and and, and, and deep thought sometimes, and yeah, you didn't, you didn't want to get it, you didn't want to buy the farm around Christmas. You didn't want to do that to your mom. You didn't want to do that to your family. And, you know, think about these guys on Tarawa with that Thanksgiving letter in their haversack that didn't come home. When do you think their mom got that telegram? Months Probably later. before Christmas. Yeah. Well, if they're lucky, we, yeah. we, we all know yeah. how the grave we, we, registration we, went in the Pacific. <laughs> 
And, yeah. I, and I don't mean to laugh, but yeah. No, yeah. seriously. I mean, but I mean, the newspaper said that island was secure. You know, I mean, you know, people are waiting. Yeah. So, but when do you break the news to them? You know, it probably was probably around Christmas, if not a little before, not far after. And that's tough. That's tough. Yeah, that battle is just, it's just so intense. I mean, the, just, I mean, they had everything going against them. Like you said, the nape tide. Um, once they got on the beach, there was nowhere to go. They're stuck underneath the, the pier for the longest time. Um, it's just, that was, logistically, the whole thing was just insane. I mean, you're talking, you know, um, I'm looking at the numbers here. I'm trying to figure out which size Japanese, which, okay, yeah, 1,696 killed, 2,101 wounded. Um, U.S. Marine Corps, 1,000 killed, 2,101 wounded. U.S. Navy, uh, one escort carrier sank, 687 killed. Um, and that's, you know, that's not even including the the Japanese losses. And that escort carrier, I believe, was the Liscombe Bay. Yep, sure was. Um, was the yeah. USS Liskin Bay, which was an ACV, uh, CVE 56, was the second of the 50 uh, Casablanca class escort carriers built to serve the United States Navy during World War II, launched on April 1943. So that thing had a very short uh, shelf life yeah. on it. And it, uh, it took uh, one very famous sailor down with it. You know, the very first African American there in Navy Cross, Dory Miller, from his exploits at Pearl Harbor went down with the list convey. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. Times like this, I mean, and you know, cause you served, um, the holidays, it's just in itself. I mean, it's just one more thing to make you think about home. And I would assume a lot of times when you're over there, the last thing you want to do is, you know, torture yourself by thinking about things you can't have really any real control over. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but you just can't help it sometimes. <laughs> you let your mind wander sometimes. So anything I, uh, anything going on down at the uh, museum? Yeah, so, you know, speaking of anniversaries and commemorations, uh, we're going to be celebrating on the 5th of December, you know, this uh, next coming Saturday, uh, the Highland Lake Squadron is going to host a Pearl Harbor commemoration and salute to first responders program. So I think it's a neat way to tie in. Uh, we don't exactly have any Pearl Harbor, uh, you know, artifacts. Sure. You know, a direct tie to uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, I'm going to bring uh, an artifact or two from my personal collection to display, but we don't really have anything in, in, in the collection. So I thought this is a great way to tie it in with first responders. I mean, think about immediately after the attack everybody was a first responder everybody had to help you know the bucket brigades mm -hmm. and helping with casualties and everything so um we're gonna have some of the local fire departments and police and ems we're gonna you know cook some uh, pork butts and sausage and some sides and the vfw is going to make some desserts and um we're just gonna we're we, we got the snj airworthy again so we'll be hopefully selling some rides in the, in the snj and we're going to top the day off with uh, we've got a projection screen coming in, and we're going to show Tora 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 in the nice. hangar on a big projection screen. That's cool. And that's one of the things yeah. I enjoy doing. Um, it doesn't happen all the time, but a few of the Florida reenacting um, events, 
Uh, there's a gentleman who has like a, I don't know, it's like a 15 foot utility trailer. It's all white. And he just sets up a projector. And after the public goes home and we're all sitting around trying to figure out what we're going to do for four hours before we get to bed, after we eat or something, he'll, he'll project a you know, movie, whether it's Fury or. I think the first time I saw um, the original version of um, Catch 22 was on the side of that trailer. And that's kind of, it's interesting when you're sitting around watching those movies and then you look around and yes, we're at a reenactment event, but you know, you're seeing, you know, an hour and a half into Fury or whatever movie. And as you look around, there's guys wearing those same uniforms watching the movie. It's almost kind of like when you're watching Band of Brothers and they're all sitting there watching uh, Casablanca and you know, they're all just sitting there in their uniforms. It's just, I don't know. It's just a little, sometimes it can be a little just. I don't know. Just, that's part of the experience. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, that's important. That's important. I mean, if you, if you really try to keep it to period movies, mm-hmm. uh, it really, it really takes it a, a, another step, uh, deeper, but, um, yeah, man, that's, I just, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you as a reenactor and, um, you know, like I said, that's why we got to do this and, and, and do it for these guys that, that didn't come home and, and the moms that, that, you know, got that telegram around thanksgiving christmas i mean every any time is tough you know war's tough man war war it's always been tough but uh there's sometimes there's little nuances that that can make it just a little bit tougher so i think it's our duty to to make sure that that's just uh and it just can't be forgotten you know and it being thanksgiving day weekend i just want to say i'm thankful for all the listeners who's been supporting this show for going on three years now um so if you guys want a sticker Email us. They're free. Email us info at uh, WTSPWorldWar2.com or mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com or get our Facebook page and this message. Send me your name, address, and the color you want. That's right. If you have a black truck or you, if you're the type of guy who likes to do the black on black with your tinted windows, that's fine. If you have a red truck and you want a red sticker, you have a green truck, you want a green sticker, whatever. If you want a bright pink sticker so the thing can be seen miles away, just send us an email at info at WTSPWorldWar2.com and... Um, We'll send you out some stickers your way. I want to send you out some more, Jeff. I got to get some. I got some here yeah. that are cut. I got to have my daughter peel out. It's a, it's an operation. I I cut them with the cricket, and then I give them to her to peel out. And so, uh, we want to get this sent out to everybody. And um, as always, if you haven't done so, head over to wtspworldwar2.com. Click on the Patreon link and sign up. It's a dollar a month. We're actually getting ready here. Um, I was hoping to get it done here shortly, but my computer that I pipe uh, the co-host of the What's in Your Head podcast in through Zoom has decided to go rogue, and it's at 22% updating, so I don't know. Um, I was hoping to have Jeff on tonight, but we'll see with time on that. I don't know how long that's going to take. But as always, the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all Southwest Florida since 2004. So even if you don't live in Southwest Florida, give them a call. They, they can log in your computer. Obviously, your internet needs to work. And you say, well, no, obviously. Well, I've had calls. People say, hey, my internet's down. Can you log in my computer take a look? No, I cannot. But if your internet's working and you want us to help out with your computer problems, give them a call at 239-283-1120. Um, if you need some help with two-form authentication, antivirus protection, most importantly, online backup, backup all your data safe to the cloud in case your computer crashes, uh, something happens to your computer. I mean, hard drives nowadays, I think they're good for about three years at most. So make sure that important data is backed up. It's super cheap. It's $0.07 cents a gig per month. Give them a call, 239-283-1120. And as always, thank you guys for everything. And by the way, congratulations to our friend RJ Nevins and company. 
the walking point is just racking up the awards at all these independent film festivals and now that people are starting to figure out way to have these events and still do the covid you know restrictions and all that they're starting to happen more regularly now and they're just cleaning up in the uh, awards department right yeah, man, it's, it's awesome. It was like film of the year. You got director of the year at the North Virginia Film Fest up in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm like, my gosh, it's it's the little project. It's that been could. a journey. Was it has it yeah. been two years since they started filming? Let's see. We uh, that was um, gosh. Yeah, we wrapped. Um, when was that? March. Yeah, because I saw a post from of 18. Uh, yeah, because K9 Duke posted on yeah. his Instagram page. It's been two years ago since they first met you. Yeah, yeah, that was, ah, gosh, it had to have been a little more than that, yeah, because I met them in the summer, yeah. like July of 18, or, uh, no, July of 17, I think. And then, yeah, I met him in 18. Um, we started filming February and wrapped in the uh, the end of March, somewhere in there. Yep. And, yeah, has it been two years? I guess. Ah, man, it's all running together. Yeah, the older you get, the quicker time goes by. And that's even more important <laughs> why you need to, you know, focus on the holidays and all that stuff. It's just, exactly. at the end of the day, yeah. man. Has that been three Thanksgivings ago now? Wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah three, three Thanksgivings a day ago. Real, real <laughs> quick. You're, yeah, right? Man, we're getting old. You're talking about uh, pulling something yeah. cool out of your collection to take over to the museum for this event. What is one of your? Pr- I don't know if we've ever talked about this. What it, What is currently? Because I know obviously these things change depending on when you find new cool things. But what is currently your prized possession in your collection? Oh boy, uh, it don't have to be a prize. Maybe the one that that just flips your light switch right now when someone comes over your house, you're like oh, and they see something they're like oh wait, you got to see this. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, it's it's actually it's probably going to be the artifact that I mentioned. Um it's uh it's a it's about a one one hundredth scale scratch built model of the Arizona. It's it's a little over six feet long. Um it's all completely custom, you know, scratch built and uh actually came out of Malcolm Forbes uh toy boat collection. You know, Malcolm Forbes being the Forbes, uh, you know, from Forbes magazine. Uh, apparently he was a big, uh, antique toy boat collector and his collection ranged from the 1880s, um, to the 1940s. And they were very specific, uh, you know, scratch built toy boats. This is not, you know, this is before you had the Ravel Arizona kit and plastic. Yeah. Know? Right. Um, so, and it was never completed. Um, you know, there, there's some of the details a little bit more bare on one side of the ship than the other, but, it was just something my grandfather had gotten a hold of and, and has since been passed down to me. And, uh, it's, I mean, for just being scratch built, just balsa wood and cardboard, you know, painted gray, it is really incredible. In fact, I'll, I'll send you some pictures if you want. Yeah. I saw, um, I saw one or two, but yeah, please, please near to me. Yeah. Please send some photos so we can put up on the uh, website and the Facebook page. Um, yeah, yeah, that's definitely different than the Arizona model you saw on social today. Okay, what is the medium <laughs> that's, that's made one. out of? Is it wood? Is it plaster Paris? Is it you know what's it made from? The one you saw today? No, the one that you have in your personal collection. No, the one I have is it's it's almost all balsa wood. Okay. Um, yeah, and there's some kind of metal tubing that he used for the main guns, but everything else is. It's all wood. It's, I mean, it, it's incredible. 
So, yeah, I'll, I'll take some pictures and I'll actually take a picture of the inside because you can pull off the whole superstructure and look on the inside of the hull and see you've got nice. a lot of the ribbing and the propeller spin and everything. It's so, you know, a lot of cool stuff came out of the times back then, even if it was from the 50s and 60s, because people, woodworking was an art back then. Not only was it a craft, not only was it something you could do, take, you know, as a living, but it was a popular hobby back then. And, you know, sure. if you had the wood making skills and you had an interest, it, a lot of times, you know, it, it happened all the time, whether it's a plane, a, a Navy vessel, a train, people took what doll houses were huge because dads would build them for their daughters with using their woodworking passions. And so you would see a lot of that cool stuff come out of back then. Nowadays, here's your store-bought tank that I glued together with some glue and some put some water decals on. Here you go. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's, uh, have you seen, um, before we wrap up, I want to give my Netflix, um, uh, suggestion of the episode. Have you seen liberator yet? I, I haven't, I've had a few guys tell me about it and I've heard nothing but good things, but I have not seen it. I was watching the first episode. Mike Rowe does the opening monologue. Why he doesn't narrate the whole series, uh, you know, 12 episodes, I don't know. But he does the opening monologue. And I'm, like, watching it, and I'm like, this sounds awfully familiar. And then a light switch went off, and I realized I had the book in here that I just read a few months back. But it's very, very cool. Um, It's animated, but it's – this may be a little before your time, Jeff. Do you remember the original Lord of the Rings from the 70s? Negative. Okay, the original Lord of the Rings, the key characters were drawn just like a Disney. But like some of the orcs and all that, they would film live action and then they would overlay them with animation so that they can get the proper movements. Well, this is done this kind of that way. It's There's a real cast and crew, but obviously to save production money, instead of having all these huge sound stages and all that, they would animate the background stuff. And so sometimes you can see like how they had put black tape on their uniforms and to simulate the sketching. But basically what they did is they, they got real actors, put them on a sound stage. They would, you know, have the uniforms on and then they would put animation over top of them to make it look like they were a comic book almost. But it's, it's, okay. it's done very well. It's the, the acting's great in it. The dialogue's awesome. Um, it's very cool because it's a different take on the European, because it's about the uh, Thunderbirds travels through Italy and all the way around to when they go and find some of the first concentration camps. But it's very well done. The acting's great. Um, I was watching it one time. I was like, yeah, I think that that actor was using a Denix Thompson there because it's the same one I have. It's the M1928, but it doesn't have the cuts compensator on it. So I mean, there's little things you can tell when, <laughs> when they're doing their props and then they did the overlay. But it, it was very well done. So if you guys haven't checked that out, it's like, I don't know, eight episodes long. It's very cool. Um, check it out. I think it was like trending third and on Netflix a while back, but I mean, it's been a while. Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't get to see Greyhound cause I was on Disney plus, but it's been a while since we've had a, a newer world war two movie or series come out. So definitely check that one out. If you haven't seen liberator yet, um, I think your kids will dig it, but Hey, that's going to wrap it up for the huh. intro of this episode. Um, we're going to go into an interview I did back with the uh, world war two reenactor. He does German, believe it or not. It's our second German interview. Um, and so we're going to get into that from the, um, I think it was Largo, no, Vero Beach Gun Show a few months back. Um, interestingly enough, they got an event coming up in December, actually next weekend. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to make it. Um, I got basically two events left in this World War II reenacting season. Uh, the one in Vero Beach, there is one in Alabama. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to make that one this year. 
Um, so I'm not counting that one. And then the one in Georgia, which is a two-day tactical event. So, um, but yeah, my season's winding down here because, well, just like everybody else listening, COVID knocked out your seasons. But anyhow, Jeff, thank you yeah. so much. And as always, um, where can people find you on the uh, social media? Yeah, just uh, Jeff Copsetta or at Jeff Copsetta on Instagram. And, uh, of course, they can uh, go through our, our What's the Scuttlebutt uh, Facebook page as well. Just, uh, you know, ask us a question. and Yeah. Please do it's that. Send fun, us an man. email. Everybody listens. Yeah, please do that. Send us an email at mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com or info at WTSP. Even if it's not meant to be on air, if you have a suggestion, hey, you guys have yet to talk about this, it may not be something that we're familiar with. We may, may say, hey, if you know a lot on it, are you interested in coming on the show and contributing? Or B, we may look up and do some research on it and, and talk about it. But yeah, that too, if you're interested in coming on the show, you you know, part of the reason we like to interview reenactors and all that is who knows best about this other than scholars you know, to help share this history. So if there's a topic that you're interested in, you think maybe you can maintain a conversation for 30, 40 minutes, send us an email, info at WTSPWorldWar2.com or hit us up on Facebook. You can hit me up on Instagram and uh, we'll, we'll figure something out. But uh, thank you guys so much. And here we go with Kevin. And we are back and joining us now is Mr. Kevin Crane. Kevin, how are you doing tonight, sir? Uh, tired, but I uh, enjoyed a good, good week this, this weekend. Had a fun time. Yeah, you know, that's one of the um, logistical mistakes I always make when I do these podcasts at an event. It's obviously I want to do it after at least the first day so we can talk about how the event went or things like that. But usually everybody's just so tired. And a lot of times, myself, I'm so tired that I'll leave an event and not even do a show because it's just, you know, you saw me out there earlier. I was sitting by the fire and I was dozing off and I ended up having to make a pot oh, of coffee. Oh, I couldn't believe just, it. I was so wanted to tell you to get up and go lie on the cot if you were that tired. Yeah, so I made a pot of coffee and, well, I didn't want to go to bed because. At 42, my back is only good for about four hours on the ground. I read you. And I know if I went to bed at 8 o'clock, I'd be up at 3 in the morning. What now? Right. So I made a pot of coffee, and here we are, and we are good to go. So, Kevin, uh, just one one thing I like to do when I interview living history, living historians for the audience of this podcast who don't participate in this hobby is a little background on people so that after a while people get a feel of how not living history, historians are completely different in their daily lives. One guy may be a computer guy, one guy may be a doctor, one guy may be a police officer, one guy may, you know, who knows what. So what do you do in your daily life, Kevin? Uh, I run a company called uh, Buccaneer Tiki Huts. I build and thatch, um, <coughs> thatch tiki huts of all shapes and sizes, and I also do decks, bars, and tree houses. Now, when you do tiki huts, obviously most people know that tiki huts are usually made from palm fronds and things Correct. like that. Where do you harvest and where do you get your palm fronds from? Um, basically, there's a town west of where I live that yields pretty good results <coughs> out in out in uh, Palm City. And but I've got them in Jupiter. I've got them in Vero. It all depends on a given job. But you just need to drive, you know, out into the west where things are a little bit uh, less populated, and they go all along the sides of the roads. Or there's a lot of <coughs> property of real estate property for sale that you can cut on and as long as you don't um ignore any trespassing signs or jump any fences the police have in 20 years i've never been hassled while i've been out cutting leaves and that's kind of a nice business model because that keeps your overhead down it's correct when you're using supplies that obviously your two by fours and things like that you got to pay you know you got to buy the lumber for that but when you're doing tiki huts and you know it's not like shingle and roof where you got to go out and buy the shingles and the market up so it keeps your margins, well, your margins higher, your overhead lower. 
What's the longevity of a normal natural palm frond? How long are they good for up on a roof? Um, if the weather's reasonably good, I would say you'd get uh, five to six years. Depending, unless you're on, the closer you are to the water, it, it, it's marginally lower because of the winds involved. But, you know, your average residential tiki in some backya backyard, um, unless there's really serious severe weather, you should get good five years out of it. Speaking of severe weather, the wind's picking up a little bit, the microphone's picking up, but that's not a big deal. Now, are palm fronds, are they naturally um, mildew resistant? As far uh, as and all that goes? Or do you just have them at enough of a rake and three It's the repetition. Sunlight? You literally lay so many leaves over each other that it just creates a barrier that water can't get through. Because, I, you know, I think about what you're saying about them being naturally water resistant, but as soon as the leaves have been up there for a couple of weeks, they die. Yeah. So it's, I would say, it's, it's, uh, it's more or less due to the repetition of layers that are put on the hut. That has a great deal to do with it. What got you involved in uh, reenacting? Uh, let's see. I started collecting uh, military antiques when I was very young, uh, probably about the age of 13, 14 years old. And this was in the late 70s. And uh, I think I was headed into freshman year of high school. And um, I dealt with a lot of um, Army-Navy surplus stores that back then sold. You could, you could find uh, original German memorabilia at these at these places so anyway <clears throat> the store owner where I did my shopping uh, there for my military antiques one day asked me if I'd ever heard of reenacting and she gave me the phone number of um, who later turned out to be my um, my unit commander and that's uh, George Krupa and this would have been I went to my first I I, I you there was no repro there were no reproductions back then so you had to go full original Pretty, pretty much. And with your height and your stature, that's probably a little easier for you. If you want to go ahead and open up that drink, you can. That no. way, you oh, know, okay. you can uh, get your throat settled down and your Coke's not getting hot in the Florida Florida heat. We're not too worried about it. I mean, I'm sitting here drinking as we go, and so we're good to go. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> just to wind this up, the, when I started to approach the reenacting, I already had almost all the stuff I needed because I was already a collector. I already had all the field gear and the uniforms or something, but I was collecting it as military antiques. Well, that suddenly became my reenacting gear for the next three years. And I did events. Uh, I went to my first event uh, in February at a, um, a very famous place up north, uh, most reenactors know of, called Rockford. We were the first unit to go in there. That was February uh, 17th, 1977, two years wow. from my 15th birthday. That's insane. And... and, and Obviously, and Brian and I were just talking about part of the problem with reenacting nowadays and is the barrier to entry, which is why so many reenactors are older is because of the, the financial involvement. Whereas, like you're saying, back then the stuff was, you know, more readily available. The price points were lower, and with your size and stature, you could easily get into those uniforms. And so to get in this at 15, especially back then, that's, that's quite an achievement. Well, like I said, I was lucky because I, I'd already, in, in, as a military collector, even at that young age, I already had almost all my field gear, pieces of my uniform, helmets, everything that I needed, probably I would say about 80%, and I had to get a, I had my unit commander help me get a couple extra things. I think I bought a pair of boots and some Y straps and stuff, and I was good to go. So I think that I was lucky 
to have been in the position I was in as a collector because it made my transition into the reenacting very quickly. It wasn't like I, I decided I wanted to get involved in it and it took a while. Two months later I went into the field. <laughs> three feet of snow in February. Now obviously you were saying up north and now you're just saying three feet of snow in February. What state were you? What state did you I was in Rockford, Illinois. Illinois. We were, Rockford is a huge reenactment now but back then nobody had ever heard of it. We were the uh, first unit to go in there. Uh, we went uh, representing a, um, pr a private <coughs> infantryman in uh, Hare <coughs> unit called uh, the 110th Panzer Regiment, and uh, which is their parent unit or their parent division is the 11th Panzer Division, and um, we were up against of all the uh, they, they're not even around anymore. The Devil's Brigade at that Rockford event. Hold on one second. My mic cord is breaking up and it's bleeding over what you're saying. I don't want to diminish your comments by poor audio quality. It almost sounds like wind, but there we go. And so you're saying Rockford, you know, at the time, you know, nobody'd ever heard of it. And you know, and now it's. <coughs> I mean, I'm sure you've know you know of Rockford, right? No, no, really, I never. I didn't get involved in reenacting until I moved to Florida, so I missed out. Even okay. when I lived in Ohio, we I was just talking to Brian about this. I never experienced Connie. That's still my bucket list, and so okay. um, I don't. With the exception of the event I did in Alabama and Georgia, I don't know reenacting. It's become a huge event. Yeah, I've never actually been to it, but we were the first unit to go in there back forty odd years ago, and now they they have the, the huge reenactment there every year. I don't think it's in the exact same place that we use, though, the same uh, area. Now, when you do your German uh, um, impression, which is your only impression, what um, what regiment or what group do you usually portray? My primary uh, impression, um, before all the other ones, is a member of the uh, 9th uh, Hohenstaufen Division, which is an SS division, a Waffen-SS division which is not to be confused with the Algmine SS. They were the ones who guarded the camp. We, the Waffen SS that I serve as a soldier in a unit of was an armed unit that fought alongside the regular soldiers in the army of most case, in most cases. So uh, <coughs> I portray a, um, a sergeant in the 9th Hohenstaufen Division and um, let's see, to give you a little bit better background, we were one of the divisions that fought at Arnhem with the British when they tried to do bridge too far and <clears throat> our division was um, praised by the British who were actually taken prisoner by our, our uh, units that they were treated very reasonably and decently and their wounded were attended to. So uh, the Waffen SS, just like all branches of, of, the, of it, has, has got uh, blood stains on it but not every single unit or every single soldier was involved in places like Malmedy or Wurlamont or even uh, the Warsaw Uprising and what happened with Derlanger. So uh, uh, anyway, that's, that's my primary, is a, is a, a, a Scharfuhrer in the 9th Hohenstaufen Division. Uh, circa 19, fall of 1944. My second impression is that of a um, uh, soldier in the German Africa Corps serving in South Af in uh, North Africa, excuse me. Yeah, because I was going to ask you that because I noticed you do have some of the uh, North African um, HBT uniforms. I'm wearing my, my African uniforms right now. I've been wearing it all day, yes. Because it makes perfect sense down here in Florida. So anyway, that's, that's a soldier of uh, the Africa Corps under Rommel. And uh, it's, uh, if, 
uh, growing up, we were always seeing movies about uh, the, the, uh, the armies fighting in the desert, chasing each other about, and just it's a very it's become a very romanticized part of the war. Even though in ra reality, it was just as awful as anywhere else. Sure. But, so uh, anyway, my next impression after that is uh, uh, Hare, which is regular German army. I serve as a sergeant in the 59th Fusilier Battalion. We are a bike regiment who, uh, oddly enough, also served uh, near the area where Bridge Too Far took place in that battle for Arnhem. Um, a uh, uh, Tiger commander, uh, <laughs> even though I don't have Where's a tank. Your tank? No, but I do have the impression the tanker's uniform, and uh, if I'm lucky enough, sometime soon here, when Rob brings his tanks out, I'll get to have my pictures taken with him, and I'll be able to justify the impression. Yeah, that'd be a nice addition to your portfolio of photos. Now, we're here at the Vero Beach Gun Show, and uh, this weekend is just kind of a, a, a quick put-together living history event because, well, much like everybody else in the country due to COVID, all our events were shut down, and plus it's middle of the summer, which we try to do most of our stuff in the wintertime because of the heat and the environment. But I guess um, you guys have been doing events here for years, and the big one's coming up December 1st, where we actually will do a battle reenactment. And I guess in the past, you guys are talking about you've had everything from people parachute into here and just all kinds of politicians uh, here and huge, huge crowds, hundreds and hundreds of people. Yeah, they... Uh, the trouble was there at the same time that we used the park there was a dog show being held here <laughs> and for two years the dog show people complained that the blanks from the battle were upsetting the dogs which i respect as a dog owner so they um we ended up for a year not being i do apologize i gotta get a new microphone cable um as you're talking the staff is just No, it's just... Oh, okay. This cable has a short end, and it's just going ape shit. Will you be able to edit this out? Yeah, I'll, I'll just... Uh, the dead space, I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This <coughs> I can edit all this out. How am I doing with this, okay? You're, you're fine. You're perfect. Okay. Only problem we're having is this stupid microphone cable, which i got to replace. See, this is my cable. I actually have a studio set up in my house. And uh, the, I only use this equipment when I do events, and I, it's been a while. And so, as you're saying, um, the, the problem was is you guys are doing this the same weekend of a dog show, and the dogs, and rightfully so, depending on the Correct. size of the dog. Owner, I know my dog does not like gunfire, so I appreciate what they were saying, but the park's the ones who scheduled us here at this particular time. That wasn't our idea, so and there's, it's no fault. Anyway, in any event, they um, they the so then one year we couldn't really have any battle or any weapons demo, and then the following year, last year they changed the date on it, so we were able to do all that again. And now I think it will start to go back to what it used to be, which is a much much larger event. As someone who's been doing living history and reenacting as long as you have, you're probably um, one of the few people on this show who's been doing it for that a length of time. Where do you see reenacting now, and do, does it have ebb and flow? I mean, for example, I used to skateboard, and I know it would go in 10-year cycles. It would gain popularity, then it would die down, gain popularity, and die down. 
Um, where do you feel it's at now, and what are some of the changes for good and some of the changes for bad you've seen over the last, you know, 25, 30 years? 40 years. 40 years. Actually, yeah, 70, 40 years. Yeah, I was born in 78. I'm 42. So, yeah, 40 years. Yeah, because my yeah, – uh, well, for one thing, the one thing that I'm, I – I left the hobby for a great many years. I, I did it for three, three and a half, four years, and then I left the hobby for a long time. And for years, I thought that I would – have to come back to in order to get back into the hobby i have to start recollecting german war memorabilia again in gear in order to furnish my impression and that cost of yeah. uh, prices have skyrocketed I, you just it's not that easy anymore to even find the stuff like it used to be anyhow i uh ran across a company uh in um in uh, columbia kentucky called uh, at the front mm -hmm. and um realized that all the stuff that that i needed could be purchased uh as reproductions that were as good a quality if not sometimes they, you could even confuse them with the real thing so the quality of some of the companies in asia here in the states everywhere it's it's frightening it, you could fool somebody sometimes into thinking you're actually looking at the real thing anyhow uh, as soon well, as i discover oh not to cut you off and while we're on a subject of that um and i know you probably similar to I am. Um, this weekend we're doing a living history event, so I brought out my original haversacks, my original yes. M1 belts. When you're out in the field running around, rolling, getting dirty, and more, a lot of the guys, we don't like to, unless it's one of those pieces of equipment that are still a dime a dozen, but, um, for, but the majority of us, we don't um, appreciate or enjoy going out and doing tactical events or reenactments wearing original gear because it's just so hard on it that most of us wear our, re our reproduction gear at that time. And so it's it's definitely nice now that you like you said you have at the front World War II impressions. Yeah, Hessian Antique, International Military Antique, Southwest Military Wholesale. There's a dozen companies in the United States that cater to our hobby, and they all via or they all try and come up with the the closest quality item to the original as they possibly can. And it's quite a competition, and it drives the price up, and it is not a cheap thing to uh, to have this, to do be in the savvy these days. One of the things I recommend to people who are wanting to get into this is um, if you have the ability, like it, sometimes you can go onto these websites and they'll have used equipment for sale, and and the price is lower. And don't be afraid to buy used equipment because what's going to happen is you're going to buy that brand new equipment and someone's going to see a photo. Oh, your uniform's too clean. You need to weather. And so by all means, if you can find quality used equipment, reproduction equipment that's already, you know, dirty and you save 20, 30 bucks, by all means, buy the used stuff. If it fits you and it looks good on you, you know, save the money, buy the used stuff because it's, it's going to already have that wear and tear look to it. And so... What are some of the downsides, some of the negative changes you've seen in this hobby over the last few, last 10 years or so? Um, back when I first got into this hobby, it, you, you didn't see, at least in, in the unit I served in, you didn't see any reproductions. They weren't available, the companies weren't out there and stuff. I mean, you, you saw things, but a lot of times they were um, labeled a word we we, we reenactors use they call it far which means it's it has bears no relation to the actual item and it's fake it doesn't look anything like an original and it can refer to anything to a helmet to a pair of boots to a bob it's just a universal word yeah i believe it's an ac uh, a shortened version of far be it from me but <laughs> uh it has to do with the lack of actually the it's a german word and it really? has to do with the lack of color huh 
So, I, I, I don't, all I know is it's been used for years, even yeah. back when I first got in the hobby. Anyway, um, uh, downside uh, changes you've seen. Oh yeah, is that the 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 guys all argue and 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 uh, argue over whose stuff is best in the reproduction world? That oh, I I buy my stuff from one company and they're way better than the one you just mentioned, and um, their helmet looks farb or their uh, ammo pouches look farb, mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of. <laughs> <it's> <laughs> Well, the Internet's made all that worse because I find out, regardless if it's World War II or if you join a parrot group because you've got three parrots and you want to make sure you're doing it right, what happens is when you have a group of people who aren't interacting um, in person, it just it, it becomes less about helping people out and more about who knows the most. It's just a bunch of people trying to outdo one another in the knowledge of whatever that particular subject may be. Once again, whether it's parrots, uh, Boston Terriers or World War II, and so a lot of times you go there with hopes and desires to learn something and to get constructive criticism, and it's just a bunch of people trying to prove who, who knows more about that particular topic than anybody else, and it just, it becomes just a, a negative waste of time. Yeah, I would say to anybody entering, the, a young person especially entering the hobbies these days is, uh, <coughs> You, you're just going to have to develop your own trial and error system when it comes to a lot of these companies because you can jump on Facebook and you can say, oh, I want to I wanna buy a, um, a set of uh, ammo pouches from the Smith Company. And you'll get 10 different replies and arguments will start over the quality of what's on there and stuff. And, and at the end, you're not getting any kind of a clearer picture of what it you wanted to find out in the first place, which is should I buy this item from this company as a quality. So sometimes you just got to kind of wade into it on your own. You buy it. That's how I did it. I bought several things from some of the top companies, and I learned <coughs> what their strong points were um, in their inventories uh, or, or, or their, their low points. And um, I let that act as my guide. And unfortunately, sometimes it can cost you a little yeah. bit of money. You know, I bought, there's one company I checked out by buying several uh, military caps from them. And unfortunately, they were so bad, I, I just had to eat the loss, and I literally gave the caps away. But yeah. I know now never to ever go to that company for that particular item again. So. As somebody who's been doing German reenacting and living history as long as you have, obviously there's some stigma that comes along with it. Oh, heck yeah. What is some of the, just the incessant things that you just run into over and over again when it comes to uh, when someone may meet you for the first time and find out what you do or see a photo of you somewhere in a uniform and seeing the spastika on the, your your breast because that was the logo what's some of the hardest parts about being a German reenactor in general and has it changed has those problems become more now that we're 2020 and everybody are so sensitive to compared to what it was like in 1980 when you're doing it no actually it's less ironically uh, when i first started reenacting in in uh, in early 77 the reenacting as a hobby was not it was nowhere near as well known as it is now I mean, now it's universal. I, I've got, I know reenactors all over the world, yeah. literally. Guys in Japan, guys in um, in India, and stuff like that. Anyhow, so back then, I, it happened to me. 
we would go and we would have an event where our, our unit would go to a museum and set up a lot like we are this weekend at this gun show. And sometimes we might um, skirmish with the Americans and shoot off some blanks. So everybody would applaud the Americans for being there. But beyond that, since nobody had really uh, reenacting as a hobby had not been around that long then, people looked at us and just went, what the F are the Nazis doing here? Well, everyone's and got to keep in mind, this is 1977, so you're right. only 30, you know, a handful right. of years outside the war, and the people who were there, or the children of the people right. were there. But they didn't understand. They would see us at an event in the uniforms and have yeah. no concept of reenacting, and they would immediately jump to the the yeah, political yeah. fourth right and so forth like that. So anyway, nowadays, I, I do a, a particularly harsh impression as a, as a Waffen SS soldier. Um, it's subject to a lot of controversy because the SS were involved in a lot of atrocities, whether it was the Algemein SS in the camp or the Waffen SS at Malmedy or Warlamont or the Warsaw Uprising. But I have never, in, in the last eight years that I've been in the hobby doing this, I've yet to have anybody come up and say anything negative to me. I always get compliments. Um, and I tell people the reason I'm here is, is, uh, is to show people uh, the truth of what, what things looked like back then. Uh, the uniforms, the vehicles. It's simply a combat uh, a history impression, and that's it. You may know the answer to this more than I do. Um, I know, I don't know if it ever came to fruition, but I know there was talks three, three and a half, four years ago that over in Europe, they were trying to float the idea of, hey, at reenacting, you guys can't have these swastikas on your uniforms and this and that and the other thing. And there were, and you're like, that's, and I, and I get it. I get what that logo means to a lot of the people over there, but once again, you're, you're erasing history, and and we're not out there doing living history events or reenactments to romanticize war, to make it seem like this big, great thing. No, we're, on the contrary, we're doing it to celebrate the um, work and energy that the Allies and the Americans put into it. We're also tell, trying to tell the entire story for what it is, good, bad, the ugly. And more importantly, especially when it comes to some of the atrocities in which you spoke of, if you don't teach those histories, people are going to forget it. And there used to be a saying back even when I was growing up, if you don't learn from history, you're bound to repeat it. That seems to be, well, let's just get rid of everything now. And one of the things I, with what's going on in our country now with the Civil War statues being torn down, look, not every monument is a celebration. You think the Germany looks at Auschwitz Museum is a celebration? No. It's a stern reminder of what happens when things can go bad. Yes, some monuments are celebrations, but not a lot of them are not a celebration. It's a reminder. And, and, I, and I always joke around and like when it comes to some of the Civil War stuff that's being taken down. Look, if you truly believe that the particular person in that monument that you're wanting torn down is a horrible person, instead of turning on a statue, why not put up a plaque saying, hey, Here's so-and-so, this guy was an asshole. Let's not do this again. And so the idea of over there to have reenactments where now we're removing logos and badges from uniforms where now they're just a generic boogeyman, there's no justice in history on that. No, I agree with you. And I don't think it should be done. And I'm sorry that <coughs> certain things are offensive to certain people. And I'm not, I am not disrespecting that, that that can be the case. But 
when it comes to l trying to show history literally, which mm -hmm. is what we're here to do especially. Yes. We're supposed to show the difference between what you see in Hollywood, what comes out of Hollywood, and what the Allied and Axis armies during World War II actually looked like. So we, <coughs> we don't get to remove and pick and choose and um, what we do or don't want on the uniforms. We are presenting the images as they were 75 odd years ago and they should remain intact, not cherry picked of things people don't like to look at. I'm and, sorry. And as Brian and I were talking before, there is an unspoken decorum. You're not going to have people walking around dressed up like Goebbels or Himmler or Hitler. No, and I won't personally, I won't allow the swastika to be flown on anything that, I mean, it might be stamped on a box, but if somebody were to put up a German fl a flag, the big red flag or something, I'd be the first person to tell them to take it down. Because uh, re regardless of what I said earlier, I do not want to directly offend anybody who comes to visit us. And flags like that are political, a lot of them. The real Germans didn't fly battle flags in front of their, uh, with the swastika on them in their little defenses like this yeah they would have used unit flags so I don't see any reason to to let that to even go there you know yeah. we don't need to have flags and they're gonna cost and I, I feel that a big giant red swastika flag it, it could it could be offensive to some people there's no reason for us to have them here yeah so there's a difference from the crest on your uniform versus a, a correct in your face yeah I don't I have no we have no desire to alienate people here we're here to try and help educate them absolutely couldn't agree more um, what are some of the positive things you've seen as far as reenacting in the last couple of years? Are, are things bouncing back? Are they stabilizing? Are the, um, the the people getting involved? Do you find that they try to learn the history more? Or you know, what are some of the positive things you've seen over the last couple of years? I would say that the uh, people that I've met in reenacting, and this goes back all the way to when I started in the 70s until now to, to tonight here, are probably some of the finest people I meet in life. Um, I they are this is, I consider this my extended family and they it just so happens that the, the some of the best people I've ever met happen to be reenactors they're among my friends they're the people that I I actually hang out with even when we don't go to reenactments and it's because it does for some reason it seems to attract not every single time but more or less a higher caliber person to it to our ranks. Now, obviously, there's always the um, exception that proves that rule, but I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it's funny. I was talking to my fiance tonight, and my battery my cell phone was dying, and I was in my truck trying to charge it. And I was like, well, I have a, a wall charger. Let me go plug it up in the pavilion. She's like, well, aren't you afraid someone's going to steal your phone? I said, no, the public's gone. Right. I said, I've yet to meet a re I said, everybody out here has thousands of dollars worth of equipment. Yep. I said, I've been in charge of a, a gentleman's $5,000 Browning automatic rifle. He just... Put it in my hands. I'm in charge. I said, I said, there's no one here that's going to feel the desire to steal my $700 phone. No. And, and because, and well, like you said, we're all we're all great friends. If you've been to at least three events in the same state, you're going to know the people. Yes. And, um, the the people who are assholes, they get drummed out. Yeah, they do quick. One mess up, you know. You'll hear a story that may have happened 10 years ago where one person stole someone's item. They were drummed out. And it were self-policing. We all have so much invested in this hobby that, you know, it's hard to have the amount of money invested in this hobby and be a dirt ball. It just don't go hand in hand because usually dirt balls are not only dirt balls 
in that time, but they're dirt balls in their daily life, and so usually they don't get to a position where they can afford the type of equipment to be here. Sure. And so I don't, you know, and when the public's here, hey, Kevin, i got to use a restroom. Can you keep an eye on my camp? And everybody does that. You know, you've got to walk away from your camp to go do something. The guy in the tent next to you will keep an eye on your stuff, and if somebody walks up to your stuff, he will treat it like it's his and talk to them and make sure no one walks up to your stuff. And it's it's a very nice communal thing, and that's one of the best things about living history is, one, we get to sit around campfires and usually not be on our phones, and, two, we're all trustworthy, nice people out here. Uh, one short story I'd like to share with sure. you just real quick uh, to show you the bonds that, that we have among us is I have a... Um, a young uh, Jack Russell um, mix that I bring to mm -hmm. most of these events. She's here with us this weekend. And I went to an event in a place called uh, Markets of Marion two years ago, and River was with us, and there were some tanks there. And I, of course, had to leave her on, a, on an extended leash in camp while I went to the battlefield to perform in the event. Well, little known to me, while I was gone, when the tanks started firing their shells, uh, River... Um, got so freaked out and so scared that she broke her leash, uh, broke the rope of her leash and took off. And we're miles from, from hundreds of miles from home um, in a, in a, um, a fairground, in a fairgrounds venue. I'm in the field <coughs> doing a re doing the battle reenactment and have no idea this is going on. And a very good friend of mine just happened to see her take off at, at, uh, out of the corner of his eye. So uh, anyway, I did. While well, I, like I said, I was on the field, didn't know all this was going on. He took off after her, wound up chasing her halfway through all these fairgrounds, which are several acres, and finally she ran and got underneath the car to a, in a parking lot, and he was able to coax her out and bring her back to camp. So that by the time I returned back to camp after the battle reenactment, it didn't look like anything was wrong, and nobody wanted to tell me right away to upset me. So they sat down later, and the story. Um, and the story came out, and it was wonderful because um, I couldn't be there, but somebody else who knew uh, my river, another member of my extended family, saw what was happening and acted immediately and saved the dog, or she, I might have never got her back. Yeah. So it's a wonderful story. I'm not going to say the guy's name, though. Sure. <laughs> what is the piece of um, weaponry you use in your primary um, impressions? Oh, there's two of them. I carry a Walther P-38, a 9mm uh, semi-automatic pistol, and, and that's as an NCO, I carry that. And then my main weapon is a 9mm MP-40 um, uh, machine gun, machine pistol as it's called. Um, it's commonly referred to as a Schmeiser, but that's a misnomer. He had nothing to do with the design of the gun. So if somebody ever, if you ever got to describe it, you call it a 9mm MP40. It was a fully automatic uh, machine pistol with a 32-round magazine and an extending um, uh, steel stock that would extend so you could get uh, better accuracy. What was the firing rate on that? I couldn't tell you. Shit ton? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Although I, I, I have heard that, that they were, fi I've never actually fired a real uh a real MP40, but I've been told if you fired off more than a six or seven round burst, they had a tendency to jam sometimes. Yeah, but right. I don't know. Somebody might tell you different. 
Is there anything else you would like to share with our audience before we wrap it up? I want to thank you for your time. And um, with the exception of the error that you guys didn't hear because I edited it out with the, my microphone cable. Um, Kevin, first and foremost, thank you for uh, stepping up and acting as the second, and I don't want to say in charge, but when we all showed up, um, you know, being here, meeting and greeting us, telling us where to set up, and just being an all-around great guy. I, I greatly appreciate that. And, um, you know, for guys like me who, who are driving two and a half hours, and it's always great to see, you know, a familiar face when you're in a new location. And there's been times driven to Georgia. You're there. Uh, I mean, just about any event I go to, it's you're like there. It's a family reunion. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's an air show. It doesn't even matter if it's in a different state. You know, you always seem to be there, and, I, and I'm thankful for that. And I'm proud to call you a friend. I'm proud to call you a friend, and I really have enjoyed uh, the food that you've shared me f- with me this weekend, and the coffee especially, because it's sure better than the store-bought stuff they're serving us here. Well, for those you're not familiar with it, go to my YouTube channel over d-410.com or Digital 410. And by the way, this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all Southwest Florida since 2004. So even if you're not in Southwest Florida, they can help you remotely. Give them a call 239-283-1120, and they can log in your computer remotely and help you out as well as offer two-form authentication online backups and antivirus that's 239-283-1120 but as i was getting to if you go on our youtube channel you'll see that i built my um stove top in an ammo crate so that i don't have to hide all my stuff under tarps during events and i built that because one of the hardest parts about doing a two three four day event is after a while you get tired of eating peanut butter and crackers and and cold cuts and so having the ability to pull out a hot plate and make hamburgers in the day, hot dogs, even steaks or pancakes, and hot coffee. Or coffee. It just makes the weekend that much more tolerable and actually enjoyable. I agree with you there, 100%. So it's my pleasure to help provide you food because obviously I'm stopping and buying hamburgers. I can't just buy one patty. i got to buy a whole box. I'm sure not going to eat it, and I don't want to go to waste. So it's my pleasure to help provide you with some warm food in your tummy and some nice coffee. I appreciate it. You've seen what my camp looks like and it takes looking after all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Kevin has his tent set up and he's the only one with a a fly or a canopy if you will and we are out in the hot sun, no shade, no trees. I think I almost got heat exhaustion earlier today and everybody's basically, it doesn't matter, even the Vietnam guys are all sitting underneath his canopy and so um, it's just attending, and I'm seeing our fire is going to go out right now. So we're going to wrap up this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Thank you guys so much, and head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. As always, you can see all the photos of the reenactors involved in this episode, as well as the Patreon link and all the links to our YouTube channel and all that good stuff. Please, if you haven't done so yet, sign up for Patreon. It's a dollar a month. They take a dollar of your bank account. It helps you go support this podcast. If you sign up for the $7.50 a month plan, you get a free T-shirt after the second month. Thank you guys so much, and we will talk to you all soon. Thank Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Don. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>